Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous conversation is with one of the world's best-selling authors essentially ever. The man's name is James Clear. And this conversation is a throwback to just before the book went out, actually. The book is referred to as Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Tiny changes, remarkable results. This book is going on to sell millions upon millions of copies. Can't seem to get off of the number one place in the New York Times list. And uh, it's just impressive to see what hard work, focus, and just really trusting the process, I think, is something that James has been doing for a long time. And I remember going out to dinner with him before recording this podcast the night before and talking about the work that he put into the book. And he's been doing his mailing list for years and years and just slowly, bit by bit, brick by brick, building his uh, following and building his impact and building his mind. And uh, it was such a beautiful thing to get to see all that hard work come to fruition in the form of this incredible book. So I'm so grateful to get to share conversations like this with y'all. Grateful for the authenticity, kindness from people like James. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Before we get started, want to share a review on the uh, iTunes, Apple, Apple Podcast, rather. Uh, this comes from Colby LA. Aaron is inspiring, period. I follow the Align Podcast and Aaron's Instagram exercise for over three years. I am consistently inspired to achieve my own health goals. As a result, I may not reach the same golden bronze color. It does not exist in nature, only on this podcast host, but I'll keep one. Good on you, mate. Golden bronze color. Thank you very much, Colby LA. If you guys leave reviews on the iTunes, I greatly appreciate it. It helps the algorithmic gods know that people are tuning into this and helps share this podcast around. So if you think this is meaningful for other people, that's a helpful way to support. Share it with friends, share it with fam. And that's it. That's all. Let's get back to it with good man, the legendary James Clear. So the intro of your book, as I had mentioned, was gut dang enthralling. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> your face doesn't look that misarranged. Yeah. Well, I used to be smart though. And then, uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah. I had this crazy injury, got hit in the face with a baseball bat. And, um, I mean, it was a total you accident. just get hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was like, yeah, it was intense. I mean, it shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is really hard to break because it's pretty deep in your skull and, and got helicoptered to the place and you were, they put you in a coma and yeah. your like brain was exploding. Couldn't breathe on my own brain was totally freaking out. You know, there's so much swelling with something like that. So I started having seizures over and over again that day. Um, and ended up taking me, it was like eight or nine months. Uh, for the full recovery. I couldn't drive a car for eight or eight months. I first physical therapy session, I just practiced walking in a straight line. So it was a long road back for sure. How did that play into the habits? Well, I mean, in a sense, my hand was forced. And what I mean is that like when you're in a situation like that, I couldn't just flip a switch and be better. You know, I, I had to start small. And so that was maybe the first time that I really had to internalize this idea of just getting a little bit better each day. I mean, I, I wouldn't have said that at the time, right? Like I didn't have a language for it. I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better. But effectively, that's what I was forced into doing because I had to just try to find some small 
signal of progress or positive improvement I was making each day. And then, uh, eventually over the next five or six years, I was able to kind of live that out and make my way back and have this good career with baseball and all that type of stuff. Yeah. What was, so what, what is getting 1% better? Cause it sounds, the idea sounds really great, but then what that actually tangibly yeah, ends up looking like, it's like, uh-huh. I think it's more, you can consider it more a heuristic or just like a way of thinking about it. You know, like you're not looking for massive improvements. You're just literally trying to make sure you never end a day without finding something that you can improve on. And usually it's something small. I mean, it might be like, you know, how you design the room so that you're more, I don't want to say triggered, but prompted to do the right thing. You know, so for example, if you watch too much television, well, walk into pretty much any living room in America, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the TV. So it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? So there are a variety of things you could do there. You could like take a chair and turn it away from the television. You could take the remote control and put it in a drawer. You could put the TV behind like a wall unit or a cabinet. So you're less likely to see it. You could also increase the friction of the task. So you could like take the remote control, uh, the batteries out of it so that it takes an extra five or 10 seconds to turn it on. And you're like, do I really want to do this? Or am I just like mindlessly turning it on? You could unplug the TV and then only plug it back in. If you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like turn Netflix on and find something. And if you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out. If you wanted to watch something bad enough to set it up again. I had one reader who they, she and her husband got rid of their TV and their metric was like, if we don't care enough about this game to drive 15 minutes and go to the bar to watch it, then like we probably shouldn't be watching it. Mm. But uh, my point there is that all of those are examples of like 1% improvements. Now, none of them mathematically you could quantify and be like, oh, it's exactly 1% better, but they're all small shifts that nudge you in the right direction. So it's, it's kind of like a philosophy of living rather than like a calculation. Seems like we waste so much time. We don't realize it. Yeah. You know, in those times where you're flipping through the channels, like if you, if you were to add all that up in the end of the year, it's gotta be. It's crazy. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Think about your phone, right? The average person, it goes up. This number goes up every year, but uh, now the average adult checks their phone over 150 times a day. And one thing I've noticed, I've started keeping my phone in another room uh, outside of my office until lunch each day. So I at least get like a three or four hour block of time where my phone just isn't around and I can focus. And what's funny is that if the phone is next to me, I'll pick it up and check it just like everybody else. I'll look at it every, you know, three minutes or whatever. But when it's not in my office, when it's in another room, it's not far away. It's only like 45 seconds away. I just got to go up the stairs and go to another room and get it. But I never go get it. And so it's like, well, I was checking it all the time when it was right next to me, but I never wanted to use it enough for it to be worth 45 seconds of work. And I think there are a lot of things in our life, especially with modern technology, that are like that, where they're so convenient, so frictionless, so easy and obvious that we fall into them, even though we don't really want them. We just want them because they're so easy. And so if you can increase the friction just a little bit, make it a little bit harder to order takeout food, a little bit less likely you pick up your phone, a little bit less likely to turn on the TV, then you'll often do the thing you actually wanted to do, like sitting down to write an article or to think about some project that was important to you. It's not that you don't want to do those things. They just aren't quite as convenient and frictionless. And so you don't opt for them. But the issue with being an adult is you don't have a mother or father figure to put your phone upstairs. Mm. You know, so I love the idea. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, I'm just going to grab my fucking I'm phone. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's that? What's like the golden bridge to making that connection happen? Well, so there, I mean, there are, well, first of all, you're just raising the issue of the importance of an accountability partner. And in a lot of ways, that's what parents are. They're a method or a coach is a method of keeping you accountable when either you wouldn't do it yourself or you're not aware of it yourself. 
So, I mean, that's one method is hire a coach. Um, oh. Now, it may not work for everything. It may not work for keeping your phone in another room. Probably pay for a coach would be of value. Yes. Like the one of my favorite examples of this is Atul Gawande. He was a surgeon, uh, is a surgeon. And he hired a surgeon who did the same kind of operations as him and had just retired to be his coach and review the video from his surgeries and tell him where he was making mistakes and what he could improve on and so on. He just wanted a third party. And doctors don't usually do that. But my point is that you don't just need to be an athlete to have a coach. Pretty much anybody can have a coach. Like find a mentor, find someone who's been great in your field. And then have them critique you, pay them to, to be aware of your mistakes, the things that you would overlook. So that's one method. But the second method, and this is useful for, for pretty much any habit, is that you can use what I call a commitment device. Psychologists call it a commitment device. So let's take the phone in the other room example. You're like, well, that would be good, but I wouldn't actually do that. Well, what you can do is use a commitment device, which is a way to lock in your future behavior. And so one example is they, they make these Tupperware containers that have a lock on them. And so yeah. you like time it, you can, you know, lock this for like 10 hours. Neil like, Strauss uses that when you can't get the cookies or whatever. Yeah. Well, imagine if you go to sleep each night and you put your phone inside the lock box uh, and you program it. So it can't be opened until I don't know, whatever you want, 10 AM the next morning, noon, the next day, whatever. And so then you go to sleep. Maybe you have to get a regular alarm clock, which is going to cost you, you know, $8 on Amazon or whatever. You wake up in the morning, you do your morning, you can't even get to your phone. And then it gets to lunchtime and you can take it out. And of course, the exact details of this are going to differ based on your job and your circumstances and how quickly you need to get to it and all that stuff. But, uh, but that's one way to do it. Also, a lot of people have multiple phones now, you know, they'll have their, their new one and they got like the old model or whatever. Trap phone. Yeah. Well, you can... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody could, should have uh, several trap phones. The burner. Uh, <laughs> you could uh, you could delete all the apps off of that, you know, and delete the internet access. And you no longer have, take the SIM card out if you want, and then just use it as an alarm clock or use it as an emergency phone to call friends and family if you need it, but it doesn't have any of the other stuff that you would use it for. So you've got like an out if you have to use something at 8.30, but you can't usually get access to your regular one. And there are a bunch of ways to use a commitment device like that. We were just talking about sleep before before we hopped on and started recording this. And one of my favorite examples, my friend near Ayal, he bought an outlet timer and an outlet timer costs like 10 bucks on Amazon. And you, it's basically like an adapter. You plug it into the outlet and then you plug the device into the outlet timer, but you can set the timer to kill the power at a particular time. So he, uh, he plugged his in and then put his internet router in it and then set the timer to kill the power at 10 PM each night. So gets to be 10 PM internet's off. Can't watch Netflix. Can't browse the web anymore. It's time for everybody to go to bed. And that's effectively like a commitment device that locks in that future behavior and nudges you toward the right direction. So I think in a lot of ways you can use technology to serve you rather than hinder you and kind of help you with some of that stuff. I think it's like most of us are drug addicts and we just don't realize it. Yeah. You know, it's like sometimes you need to starve the parasite to get to the point where eventually it like dies off. That's kind of like in like Vipassana meditation, like that's the guy Gwenka, he talks about doing, like we're doing deep, deep surgery, deep, deep emotional surgery. You know, and it's like you get to a point after like seven, eight days where you haven't, you've just ignored the aversion or the, the craving and aversion and a craving. And you do that and it's just hell for a week. And then finally you kind of come to this point, which in your book you talk about like ice won't start melting, melting. We just finished the ice bath thing, which was, which was, didn't go quite completely successful. Um, but it doesn't start melting until it gets past that 32 degrees or zero degrees Celsius. You know, so we can be, you know, negative 50 degrees and you won't see any change with it. And then all of a sudden you hit that 32 and oh, right. we're off. Now I wonder if there's something, something to that as far as like the way that we think. 
Possibly. I, so I did a kind of a little experiment like that with social media as I wrote the book. Cause I, I got about a year in and I was like, man, I need to make sure I'm focused to get this thing done. Yeah. So every Monday, my assistant would reset the passwords for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I would get locked out and I'd work all week. And then on Friday, she would give me the passwords and I could log in and use it on the weekend. And then on Monday we'd do it all over again. And so I would, you know, I would, wouldn't have access for five days and I'd concentrate. And what was interesting is uh, there were kind of, there were two things. One was how quickly I realized like, I don't really miss this that much. You know, yeah. like you, it's weird. Cause you're checking it all day long. If you just normally have access and then suddenly you don't have it for four days and you're like, yeah, everything's fine. Well, it's fucking new. Which it, wasn't, it wasn't around yeah. Oh, know, yeah, yeah. Well, nine years ago or whatever. <laughs> certainly not a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand. Right. Like it's not like we evolved <laughs> to use Instagram. <laughs> Right. Like there's no, there's no reason you, you weren't born with like this burning need to to use social media. So that was interesting. The second thing was some services. I actually, I would get access to Facebook and then I just wouldn't log in over the weekend. I could use it. But then even after like five days, I was like, Oh, I don't even, not only do I not need it, I don't even want it, which was kind of fascinating. So I think a lot of that comes back to what I talked about earlier with the frictionless when something is so frictionless that it only takes a half a second to pull it out of your pocket and tap it you find yourself doing it just when you're bored, not when you actually want or need it for some reason. Yeah. Who were some of the influences in it? You mentioned operant conditioning and BF mm. Skinner and, and is there someone? So when I wrote Atomic Habits, I, I realized that I wanted to have a book that was both the why and the how. Yeah. And so I wanted a book that described why we act the way we do and why human behavior kind of operates in this way, but also how we can change it. Like what can we do about it? And there are kind of two big bodies of research in the psychology world. I also draw on ideas from neuroscience and biology and other places, but so there was BF Skinner and his operant conditioning, which he described in the thirties as stimulus response reward. And then it's kind of been like repopularized uh, and brought into the modern day by Charles Duhigg in his book, Power of Habit, where he called it Q routine reward. And it's really effective because what psychologists have found is that when you offer the right reward or consequence, you, we start to get conditioned. We start to link the cue that came before the behavior to the reward. But then there's a second body of research uh, by cognitive psychologists that found out that your moods and your emotions and your beliefs can also influence your behavior in a big way. And behavioral psychology didn't really account for that as well. Um, it, it was like, no, you just show people the cue. Like, you, you know, you have the light flashes and then the rat presses the lever and they get a pellet. And it's like light flash, that's cue. You press the lever, that's the habit. And then you get the pellet, that's the reward. That should be the whole thing. But turns out in humans, what you believe and what you, uh, how you interpret the cue can have a big influence on how you respond. And so I wanted to have a model that I felt like mapped those two together. And you see this in many different areas. So like take politics is a really easy one. You could have a news station run the same story and a liberal and a conservative see the same thing, but they run it through a different filter. They interpret the cue in a different way. And so they respond totally differently. And it's true even on a more basic level, you, the individual, can respond to the same cue in different ways. So like the model that I mentioned in the book has four stages, cue, craving, response, reward. And um, say you walk into a kitchen and you see a plate of cookies. That's a cue, visual cue. It doesn't have to be visual, but it often is. Then maybe your prediction, if you're hungry, is, oh, those are going to taste good. I should eat them. So you predict it as being attractive. You're, you crave it. You take the response, you eat the cookie, and then you get the reward, tastes good, sugary. But you could just as easily be in a different state 
So your, your prediction depends on your current state. So let's say you just finished eating dinner in the other room and you walk in, you see a plate of cookies, same cue, but now you think, oh, I'm full, I'm stuffed, I don't want to eat anything. So your state has changed, which means your prediction changes, and so then your response changes, you don't eat the cookies and so on. And this happens all the time. I felt like it was really important to have a model that discussed how habits worked and accounted for both of those. It accounts for the importance of the cue and the reward, but it also accounts for the importance of your prediction, your beliefs, how you interpret those cues and how your thoughts, moods, and beliefs can influence the action that follows. Mm. Within the whole operant conditioning thing with Skinner feeding the, the pigeons, I think mm -hmm. it was one of the, like, yeah, yeah. little gizmo, the, the, the most impactful factor was the variability, from my understanding. Right? Yeah. And that's what social media does so immaculately. <laughs> so social media, video games, uh, many digital uh, creations can do this thing that's very hard to have in the real world, which is they can offer the ideal rate of variability. They can give you a reward randomly, but on average, they, it happens about 50% of the time. So about half the time you get what you want and you know, half the time you don't. And that is like an incredibly tempting thing for the human brain. It leads to the greatest dopamine spike. Yeah. And it drives you to repeat things again and again. There's actually, I, this is a footnote in the book, but it's an interesting story about how Skinner came across that. Mm. So when he was feeding pellets to the rats or, um, you know, food to the pigeons, yeah. he had to hand press the pellets in a little device. And he was running an experiment one day and they were running low on the food stuff to to make the pellets out of and it was like a weekend or something and he uh he didn't have time to go get some so he was like oh i don't want to stop this experiment in the middle of it so he just started making fewer he had fewer pellets so he started skipping occasionally he like mm. wouldn't give them one and then he'd you know to space it out so the experiment could, yeah and then <laughs> he ended up finding out by running low on food that wow not only does it still work they actually respond more you got a bunch of when, rat, rat crackheads yeah <laughs> and uh so, you know, I mean, this is the, one of the things that makes video games there, there, there are many things that video games employ, but I think there are two things in particular that make them so addicting or drive to habitual behavior. One is they can vary the pace of rewards. So if you're crushing it and doing really well on a level, well, you're going to see fewer power-ups and you'll face harder challenges and so on. If you're doing poorly, maybe they'll throw a couple things your way and help you make your way along, but they want to keep you on that razor's edge of making progress. And the second thing is immediate feedback. You have a counter in the top corner that's always going up you're collecting more rubies and coins and whatever even the pitter patter of steps as you're running through the level is a signal that you're making progress and so <laughs> video games are really good at varying the amount of rewards so that you're in that peak state and giving you immediate positive feedback to show that you're making progress and we can translate both of those to daily life and habits which is that if you can find a way to signal that you're making immediate progress it's very motivating to stick with it. Living on that razor's edge and having the perfect amount of variable rewards, winning just enough to stay motivated, losing just enough to stay challenged, that's really hard in daily life, but it is possible. And I think a lot of the time when you're there, you kind of get in this flow state. Imagine that you're playing tennis and you play against someone who's a professional like Roger Federer, or Serena Williams or something. It gets pretty demotivating quickly because you lose every point. If you play against like a child who's like four or five years old, well, that gets demotivating because you win every point. It's not, not exciting. But if you play against someone who's your equal, you win a few points, they win a few points. You have a chance to win, but only if you really try. That's super motivating because it's kind of like a variable reward. It's kind of like you're on that razor's edge. So it can happen, but that's harder to do. But anyway, immediate progress and variable rewards 
habits are really good ways to build habits. It's kind of like why people oftentimes will go through kind of a crisis once they achieve their goal, because what kept them going each day was that variability. Mm. You know, I'm like, oh, like I almost, once you're like, cool, I won the, the Stanley Cup or the, you know, whatever. I'm like, what else? Oh, I based yeah. my whole identity around this. Now I'm on the top of it. I'm like, ugh, emptiness. I call this like the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a yo-yo effect, you know, yeah. you're like uh, you, you train for eight months to win the half marathon or to run the half marathon. Then you do it. And then the, the race isn't there anymore to push you along. And so you're like, well, why, you know, why am I still motivated? Why am I working hard? And so then you stop running and then you turn around three months from now. You're like, man, I haven't run in three months. Like I need to get back on track. So you kind of like yo-yo back and forth between working and not. And that's one reason why I feel like, and this is a core philosophy in the book that you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And part of the, the point of that philosophy is to be more process focused, to have like this kind of long-term goalless mindset of just you're focusing on endless refinement and continuous improvement and mastering your craft and showing up every day and just like being in it rather than achieving a particular outcome like publishing a book or running a half marathon or whatever it's not that any of those things are bad they're just points along the curve and if you embrace this kind of endless refinement philosophy this systems oriented approach over a goals oriented approach then you have a reason to keep moving even after you cross off each goal. Yeah, the other thing I really liked in the book was orienting yourself around your identity as opposed to, to the the goal or the objective, mm. which I don't think that's the language you used exactly, but or maybe, maybe it was. But that, Similar, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? So uh, the way that I define this is that we have like outcome-based goals and identity-based habits. Outcome-based habits, identity-based habits. So usually when someone goes about the process of trying to change, They think about the outcome they want to achieve. You know, I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to make six figures this year or whatever. And then once they have the outcome, they back into a plan for achieving it. So they're like, all right, well, if I want to earn six figures, I need to make five sales calls a day. Or if I want to, you know, if I want to lose 20 pounds, I got to follow this diet and I need to work out five days a week and whatever. And typically it stops there. So they start with the outcome, they come up with a plan and then like whatever beliefs or identity come out of that process is just, they don't really think about it. I think it's better to invert that. Uh, So it's not that any of these levels are unnecessary or even wrong. It's just the direction of change. So question to ask yourself is, all right, you want to lose 20 pounds. Well, who is the type of person that could lose 20 pounds? Maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so then you focus on building that identity. Let me be the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Let me become that person. And then whatever results follow will come naturally. And so ultimately, true change is kind of like identity change. Because once you believe that you are that person, you're not even really pursuing behavior change in any way. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person that you already believe that you are. You know, like if you if you believe that you're the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, you don't have to convince yourself to go to the gym. That's just what you do. You know, you're just being you. It's one thing to say, like, I'm the type of person who wants this. Something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this. In the book, I give the example of smokers. You know, like you have two people who are trying to quit. And you offer them both a cigarette and one person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm trying to quit. And then the second person says, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. Same behavior. They're, they're both turning down the cigarette, but the first person still identifies as a smoker and they're trying to do something that they're not. They're trying to be something that they're not. The second person is like, oh, no, thanks. I'm not a smoker. They, they no longer identify as the type of person who smokes and it just signals a different level of change. And it's becomes much easier to stick to a habit once it feels aligned with your identity. Want to take a moment and share one of my favorite snacks and that is hemp seeds specifically from eaten hemp 
uh, eaten hemp, hemp seeds are fantastic because they are organic. For one thing, they're delicious. And I utilize them in uh, smoothies, salads, all over the place. What's great about hemp seeds is they are a complete protein, which is rare among the, the plant world. They contain all sorts of micronutrients, such as zinc and iron, and they taste delicious. I especially enjoy using them to cr add crunch to my smoothies. Why does that matter, adding crunch to your smoothie? When you're drinking a smoothie, you want to be chewing the smoothie. Same thing with most things. When you're drinking water or any kind of fluid, uh, it's good to kind of swish it around, kind of take your time with it. But when we are making a smoothie, we're blending up all that fruit and stuff into a blender, and that is bypassing one of the primary systems of digestion, which is mastication, chewing. When you are chewing, you're releasing various amylases, enzymes that break down carbohydrates, and uh, you're just smoking through that, that system. You're bypassing that part so your food becomes less bioavailable so throwing some hemp seeds is something that i've been doing for a while or throwing crunchy things in general hemp seeds is one of my favorite things to throw in and uh, i highly recommend y'all doing the same they got various different flavors they're great i really dig them you can get yourself 20 percent off by going to eatonhemp.com slash align that's e-a-t-o-m-h-e-m-p.com com slash align and you'll get 20% off of your purchase if you do not absolutely love this stuff it doesn't make you feel good doesn't it's not delicious it doesn't improve your life then they have a 30-day money-back guarantee so go over to eatonhemp.com slash align e-a-t-o-n-h-e-m-p.com slash align get yourself 20% off i know that you guys will enjoy this stuff and if you don't get your money back i also want to take a moment to thank BioOptimizers for supporting this podcast. I wonder, do y'all like free stuff? Well, you're in luck because BioOptimizers Black Friday deal starts now. And not only are they giving you a huge discount all month long, they are also giving away over $200 worth in free gifts. 200 bucks in free gifts, pretty rad. This is their best sale of the entire year, so now is the perfect time to stack up on some of their best-selling magnesium breakthrough. The only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief and better sleep all in one bottle. Most magnesium supplements fail because they are synthetic and not full spectrum. When you get all seven critical forms of magnesium, pretty much every function in your body gets upgraded from brain health to your sleep, pain, inflammation, and less stress. If y'all would like to get some mag breakthrough or any of their other stuff, you can go over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash align podcast mentioned this is their their absolute biggest sale that they have done all year and it's pretty sweet so you have a chance to win $200 in free gifts with select purchases and 10% off of your purchase of mag breakthrough i really dig bioptimizers it's one of my favorite companies i trust where the the sourcing of all of the supplements i know the owner personally and i really dig the stuff so jump over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast for 10 percent off of your purchase of mag breakthrough it's one of my favorite supplements i truly mean that and uh, also a chance to win 200 dollars of a free gifts from bio optimizers all right that's it back to the show it's interesting with like drug addicts like i was with some folks just a couple days ago that i had mentioned they were talking about 
um, to you, I mentioned to you at dinner and they were talking about like once an addict, always an addict. Mm. You know, like I'm sober, but I'm an addict. And it's almost like they're like defensive around that. <laughs> like, listen, right? Yeah, yeah. I am an addict. Like they, um, <laughs> maybe not like they want to be it, but like they, they still identify as it, right? They're yeah, like, they, they're it, not willing to give it up. Yeah. And so from their perspective, it's almost like it's helpful for them. That's kind of like the model of, of AA. It's helpful for them to proclaim that and kind of hold on to that and then work from there. And in my mind, I haven't been able to wrap myself around like that being like the wholest, healthiest approach, but I don't understand enough of it to really have yeah, an opinion. I, so I'm not an expert on addiction and it's possible that it's a different beast that it's like the way that I think about it is you have a, it's like a spectrum for any behavior. So you have an individual behavior. Then if you repeat that a bunch of times, you kind of move down the spectrum. And at some point you cross this threshold where it becomes a habit and you could do it more or less automatically. And then if you move even further along the spectrum, you get to addictions, which are behaviors that you continue to repeat despite negative consequences. You know, it doesn't serve you, but you still can't stop. And I think there's something about the brain's circuitry or about the feedback loop of those four stages that I mentioned that's kind of broken there. Like you, you see the cue, you still get the craving, you take the response, but you don't have a reward. You actually have like a consequence or a pain, but yet you still can't turn it off. So I don't know. I'm not sure how identity plays into that, but I have heard that from multiple addicts that they are sober or clean, but still are an addict. Um, yeah. and so I'm not sure what's going on with, with that process. It's, I mean, it's complicated for sure, but I think that the good news is I think that addiction is a separate category from breaking bad habits. So like if an addict fate feels that way, it doesn't mean you have to feel that way about all your bad habits, uh -huh. um, that those can be, you can still learn and adjust them. What do you presently struggle with? Well, I mentioned this to you at dinner, but one of the ones that's been challenging for me is a power down routine and getting ready to go to sleep each night. So I kind of have this, you had told me something I, I didn't realize about like your hormones kind of are getting ready for sleep. Yeah, they get spiked up. And then if you're not going to bed right then, if you're not kind of powering down, you just use that additional, that shift in biochemistry and put it toward work or put it towards cat somebody. videos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see them all. So. <laughs> I have this thing though, where like, I get a second, I get a second wind around like 10 PM and I kind of do an extra hour or two, or maybe even three of work yeah. and I don't cheat myself on sleep. So if I go to bed at midnight, I'm not getting up till eight. Or if I go to bed at one, I'm not getting up till nine. And I know that I do good work or I, I'm able to focus well when I wake up earlier. So I would like to be up at six or seven, but it's not the sleep. That's the problem. It's the power down routine. Mm. What have you found to help or are you flailing on that? Well, so I've started to think through this a little bit, like what could I actually do to improve this? And I think it's instructive and a good example of how to think about improving pretty much any habit. So the first thing that I think you should do, or I should do is to check off a variety of these, what I would call one-time actions that can pay off again and again in the future. So I already gave one example earlier about the outlet timer. So it's a one-time choice. You buy the timer, you set it for 10 PM each night, kills the internet um, or kills the television or whatever. Another thing that you could do though, there are like a variety of these one-time choices or investments that could make the habit of powering down or the habit of sleep more effective. So split test different mattresses, figure out the one that leads to the best night's sleep for you. Buy that one-time investment helps you out every night. Buy blackout curtains so that you can sleep in an entirely dark environment. Purchase earmuffs or uh, earplugs or something so that it can be quiet if you live in a noisy city or something like that, or when you're on the road. Buy a sleep mask so you can sleep on the airplane uh, or in the hotel room. You could also get some of those, there's like the chili pad and some of those other things that can cool the, the bed so that the temperature is more ideal. But the point here is that 
the first step I think is to take some of these one-time choices that make all the other, all the future choices easier. And once you've done that, once you've like primed the environment for success, then you can start to worry more about, okay, do I need to set an alarm on my phone for 10, 15 every night to remind myself like, Hey, it's time to go to bed. In addition to having the outlet timer and stuff like that. Some of the choices you've made just in your apartment, like having the salt lamps or the candles rather than using actual lights at night to kind of help yourself power down. And I keep self-care stuff all over the place. So that's another really powerful way to, to power down. Hmm. As you do like, you know, foam rolling your hips or I'll put like a kettlebell around my guts or you put a band around like floss out my, my, my viscera, my guts. That's directly connected to actually starting to downregulate your nervous system. Hmm. You know, so when you get that slow, deep pressure from a massage, most people will start to kind of like, ugh, like conk out as opposed to like a stimulating, vibrating kind of hmm. session that yeah. will wake you back up. That's like pre game hmm. no so just that's another little thing people are gonna have so i think the and this is part of my philosophy for habits in general um the the reason i chose the phrase atomic habits for the book there were like three reasons the first is the word atomic can mean tiny or small like an atom the second is that the word atomic can also mean the fundamental unit in a larger system so like atoms built into molecules molecules built into compounds and so on and then the third and final meaning is that atomic can mean the source of immense energy or power and I think that if you combine all three, you kind of get the narrative arc of the book, which is if you make these tiny, small changes and you layer them on top of each other, like fundamental units in a larger system, then you can end up with a powerful result. And I think that that's kind of what we're talking about here with the sleep habit is this idea that the holy grail of habit change is not a single 1% improvement. It's like a thousand of them. And you just take all these little choices. You got the salt lamps and the candles. You've got the deep tissue massage or the, the deeper massage for your viscera. You've got a mattress that works really well for you. You have blackout curtains. You've got earplugs or a quiet environment. And once you start to stack all that stuff together, you add in the outlet timer and maybe an alarm or a reminder to go to bed. Now, all of a sudden, you've got like 17 reasons that are all moving you toward the right or desired thing. And I think that if you look at people who stick to good habits for the long run, it's often because they're in an environment that makes those choices easier. And so you can, rather than being like the victim of your environment, you can be the architect of it, right? You can like design a space for yourself that feels vital and encouraging rather than something that hinders you. Yeah. It seems like if you can maintain joy in your daily existence, that's like really powerful wind in your sails. Hmm. You know, if you're doing everything, you're like, okay, I'm forcing myself into creating this habit because I think I'm told it's the better thing to do. Like if you're in that, like it's probably really hard to change your habits. The metaphor I use is like a garden hose. Like imagine you have a garden hose that's bent in the middle mm -hmm. and you got a little bit of water trickling out. And if you want to get more water to exit the hose, you have two options. First option is just crank up the valve, force more water through. But that increases tension in your life, increases friction. The second option is just remove the bend and let the water flow through naturally. And that reduces tension, reduces friction in your life. And a lot of the time, the conversation about how to achieve your goals or how to change your habits is a, the equivalent of crank up the valve. You need more persistence, you need yeah. more grit, you gotta work harder, you need to grind, you need to hustle. And there's a place for that stuff, but it's not the long-term path and it increases tension and friction. So the long-term path is, yeah, you wanna be a type of person who works hard. You wanna be a type of person who can persevere and who has grit, 
but you want to be doing it in an environment that is aligned with your goals, that is set up and designed to make that stuff easy. The way that I phrase in the book is you want to make it easy to do things that pay off in the long run. It's not that you never want to do hard things. What you want to do is make it as easy as possible to do the thing that, that delivers the greatest payoff. It's not easy to step in a freezer or to do the sauna, right? <laughs> but it's only hard for the first three minutes. And if you can make it minutes. as easy as possible to do that thing that gets you a payoff, then you're starting to live in an environment where peak performance is more possible. At what point do you get tired of talking about habits? Like what's next on the docket for you? Well, okay. So that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't gotten tired talking about them oh, yet, good. but <laughs> thanks for us. Um, I, uh, I do think that there are other things that are also important parts of the equation. So I've got a variety of other interests, like about incentives and consciousness. And I really like financial independence and early retirement and kind of all the stuff that's going on in the fire movement. So there's like a bunch of things that are like outside of that space that I'm interested in. But the uh, related to habits, I think decision-making is another thing that's crucial. So habits and decision-making, I would consider like the two pillars of living a successful life. And the way that I think about it is that decision-making your choices set the trajectory that's available to you or the potential that's available. So as an example, let's say you're an entrepreneur and you can make an initial decision to either start a local pizza parlor or you could start like a technology company, software company or email marketing service or something. So if you kind of map out this dotted line of like what the scale is or what the potential is of those two decisions, you might see that the software company has like a much steeper curve or much more hockey stick curve. So it's got greater potential or greater leverage, but your habits determine how far you walk along that curve. So it's possible that you could start the local pizza parlor and end up as a much more successful entrepreneur if you had really killer habits because you're capturing more of that potential. And of course, what we ultimately want is to both make great decisions and have great habits. And so I think that there's an opportunity to talk about that, about the importance of initial decisions and of decision making and choices and how to pair that nicely with great habits so that you can both create greater leverage and potential for yourself and capture that by executing and showing up each day. Yeah. You've read the dip, I'm sure. Yeah. Seth Godin. Yeah. 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 And that's an interesting thing is to know whether you should stick it out when you're in that dip experience, you know, or like, is this some bullshit that I should, I should drop this. And you know, I think there's so many, so many times where it's just like, that's, I mean, that's like the relevant conversation. Like once you get on the other side of the dip mm. and things are going your way, it's like, of course it all makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Everything's like easy and logical in hindsight. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I mean, I think this is one of the things that makes entrepreneurship so challenging is that you have to, nobody knows for sure when you need to stick with something and keep grinding or when you should give up and move to a different area. There's a later in the book, I talk about this thing called the explore exploit trade-off and it kind of helps deal with a explore situation. What? Explore versus exploit. The exploit. Explore exploit trade-off. Huh. So the, the idea is in the beginning of any endeavor, beginning of your career, beginning of a project that you're working on for the next three months, there should be a period of broad exploration where you're kind of looking, you know, maybe you try like five different jobs near the beginning of your career and you do each one for two years or something. And that's like the first decade. Or maybe you try a, research a variety of different methods for attacking this particular project and you do that for the first like two weeks. And that period of broad exploration is important because it exposes you to a variety of options. But then once you get a little further along and time starts to compress a little bit, you get close to the deadline or you're maybe further along in your career, you should start to exploit rather than explore, exploit the 
best option that you've found so far. There are a lot of people who've applied the same methodology. I think there's someone who even calculated the math of it for dating to see like how many, how many people should you date broadly in the beginning to kind of learn what's important to you and learn what type of personality you resonate with and learn the person that, that matches up well with you. And then at some point, once you come across somebody that seems to be a good fit again, well, then you should start to commit to that person rather than continuing to explore endlessly. Anyway, the point here is that it provides one method for dealing with this inherent trade-off that you're talking about, which is how do you know when you're in the dip? How do you know when you're supposed to keep working on something versus give up and move on to something else? And so one answer is early on, really broad funnel, and then later tight filter. Yeah. Um, and another answer or way to look at that, the explore exploit thing, is the more that you're winning, the more you should exploit the option that you have. The more that you're losing or don't feel like you're getting those results that you're looking for, you, the more you should explore. And so the way that that was phrased to me early in my entrepreneurial career, which helped me a lot for the first two years was try things until something comes easily, you know, so like keep exploring. And then once you start to get something with, you know, I tried probably four or five different websites before I launched jamesclear.com. And as soon as I launched that and started writing about habits and I was doing like two articles a week, the growth rate on that site was way higher than anything else I had tried. I don't know why it was just a different topic for, for whatever reason. Maybe my skills were a little better than maybe it's just the right time to write about it, but it took off much faster than everything else. And so I was like, oh, okay, I've explored broadly now. Like this is the thing that I should double down on. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's one way of dealing with that. It's kind of like specializing athletes from children. You end mm. up really like paralyzing them in a way, mm. you know, you don't allow that, that matrix to, to really become interconnected because all they did was that one stroke with the tennis racket, you know, 10,000 times, you know, but allowing yourself, it's actually like a real, I think a lot of times people will be, you know, early twenties or early thirties or whatever, early something. And feel this innate obligation to have the thing and it's actually kind of like almost like a load off in some ways to not have the thing if you can look at it from the perspective like oh this is dope i get to explore mm. i don't have to fucking coop myself up in the in a ha apartment and write a book yeah it takes the pressure <laughs> off you i don't need to be making a hundred thousand dollars by 30 you know yeah. like i'm just allowed to explore things yeah i'm and, going to and belgium to and drinking that. beer yeah. it's all right yeah yeah I, I think that that period of exploration is crucial and ultimately the weird thing about it is that it ends up being a good method for getting better results in the long run. I wrote this article about first principles thinking. It's just this idea that, you know, distill things down to their fundamental pieces for what you know is true about a particular problem or area, and then build back up from there. It's like you break down the castle into all the little Lego blocks and you see what the blocks are. And then you're like, oh yeah, we could take this and build it back up and make a car out of it. And one way to, to think about that, or one example that I really like is uh, Gutenberg and the printing press. So there had been printing presses before his there had been like you know little metal letters and things like that that you could actually like print something but what he did was he brought in this special device thing was like this corkscrew kind of press from winemakers totally different industry and that was what allowed him to like press uh rapidly it was a, that was what changed the whole game what changed the speed of it and then you know of course ended up being one of the most world-changing inventions because of the dissemination of information and things like that but the point is he didn't get it from his one area if all you're doing is that one tennis swing if all you if the only place you're looking for advantages is your one domain you end up hamstringing yourself it's yeah. often the most innovative and important ideas are the ones that happen at like the intersection of, of industries. And so if you're willing to explore broadly, you can often end up getting better ideas in the long run. 
And that's one reason why companies like Google, they kind of employ this explore exploit thing with their 20% time, you know, where 80% of your time is supposed to be exploiting your current job. You're working on your position, on your role, on your responsibilities. 20% of your time each week, you're allowed to explore and see what, you know, you can work on whatever project is interesting to you. Mm. And that's how Gmail came. That's how AdWords came about. I mean, some of the most successful Google products are a result of this ex exploration and some of their most failed products, Google Wave and Google Buzz and some of the other stuff like nobody ever uses anymore. That came out of 20% time as well. But the point is you need that exploration to come across some of these like real gems. For I think whatever it was, areas. it might've been Google. It was one of those those progressive companies like that that they were actually rewarding people for failing so they mm. kind of like flipped it up so it's like whoever failed like the hardest because they, they stretched the boundaries they went outside of the norm the most yeah you get a raise <laughs> <laughs> so it totally that took sounds that like a very dangerous off. game to play but i like the yeah yeah and the the i think the the wright brothers they were like bike mechanics or yeah. something like that it, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of different there's like printing press examples where what gave the people the capacity to innovate and you know evolve was the fact that they don't see it from the tunnel of the, the ordinary we were talking about that last night with like if you're not a heretic or you're not ruffling people's feathers or there's not at least some degree of you know, percentage of people that think that you're a crazy person you're probably not That's really level really contrarianism. thinking yeah um, yeah the guy who uh who invented the rolling suitcase uh first <laughs> luggage with like the, the wheels on it he was just a dude schlepping his luggage through the airport in the 70s and he saw this construction worker pushing a dolly and he was like this is stupid why does my bag not have wheels on it uh. and so it wasn't someone who worked at a luggage company it wasn't someone who you know like had been designing backpacks for a decade uh. it's just some guy who saw it differently who was outside of that tunnel vision how do people learn more how do people get books how do people do all this stuff yeah okay so book is called atomic habits an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones and you can find it at atomichabits.com the book is there but there's also some bonus guides like there's a guide on how to apply the ideas to parenting there's a guide on how to apply the ideas to business templates and worksheets for tracking your habits and other stuff but anyway all that stuff's at atomichabits.com cool so what about social media you can just check jamesclear.com and i've got articles organized by category so you can poke around and see what's interesting to you and then uh, there are links to twitter and facebook and instagram as well and you're an excellent photographer oh thanks man yeah i just do that for fun i don't know i at some point i may add it into the business model more but yeah i've done travel photography work in 30 countries now damn yeah it's been a lot of fun yeah that was cool yeah my instagram's just a bunch of ab shots and selfies <laughs> I'm like, God, I'm just a narcissistic asshole. <laughs> James is putting art up here. Hey, man, you got it, flaunt it. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, you bet, dude. Over and out. All right. Appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, you could share it on the internet. Instagram would be a likely place. You can tag James at James Clear. Tag me at Align Podcast. And we love seeing the specific parts of the episode, especially that you guys enjoyed. And love resharing those guys as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share conversations with brilliant human beings like James. And I'm so glad that you guys get to ride along on the journey. I hope the information here is being implemented into your life. I hope your habits are getting changed if you want to. And that's it. That's all. Appreciate y'all so very much. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for reviews. Thanks for doing you. I'll see you next week. Bye.